Hello, everyone. We're here with Dr. Milton Gabelis. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hobson here at the Hobson Institute, and I'm excited to be able to interview one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Milton Gabelis, um, who is a periodontist. And how I know him, he's the um, periodontist that does a lot of phrenectomy uh, work with patients of mine. So I wanted to share this very valuable information with everybody. Um, first, I just want to introduce Dr. Gavilis with his, his bio. Um, Dr. Gavilis is a periodontal specialist who practices, is limited to periodontics and dental implants. Dr. Gavilis is on staff at Central DuPage Hospital. And he believes that the most important people in our practice are our patients. He strives to deliver the highest quality care, utilizing the most up-to-date techniques and equipment in the most comfortable and gentle manner. Uh, Dr. Gavilis is a Greek uh, doctor. He's born in Athens. He received his dental and graduate training from Northwestern University. Um, and he has his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree and a Master of Science degree and specialty uh, degree in periodontics. Dr. Gavilis regularly participates in continuing education and is a diplomat of the American Board of Periodontology. He is also certified in dental laser by lasers by the, Amer the Academy of Laser Dentistry. From 1993 to 2001, Dr. Gavilis was professor and director at graduate periodontics at Northwestern University Dental School, training the residents in periodontal surgery. He has been involved in academic research and has authored and co-authored several professional articles. One of his main clinical interests is bone reg uh, regeneration procedures and computer-guided surgery for the placement of dental implants. He has given several academic and clinical awards for the work as a scientist and a periodontist. In the last several years, um, Dr. Gavilis has dedicated a significant part of his time treating infants, children, and adults with tongue tie and lip ties. He collaborates with some of the most well-known and skilled clinicians in these procedures, such as Dr. Bobby Gehari, Dr. Larry Kotlow, Dr. Scott Siegel, and Dr. Sarush Zaghi doing functional frenulopathy. So I am excited to be here with Dr. Gavilis. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, welcome, and I have a few questions for you if you don't mind me. Not at all. Thank you much for the long introduction. <laughs> <laughs> if I introduce you, then we'll be using the whole podcast. Just oh. That's so nice. So thank so, you very much for having me. First of all, I want to say that we met in 2014 because of Dr. Uh, Kevin Boyd at the IATP Second World Summit um, in Montreal, Canada. Remember, that was the first that, time. That is correct. And actually, the reason that I was there is because my good friend, Kevin Boyd, who's the one that uh, introduced me to the studies on ADHD, um, sleep apnea problems with children. Um, I, I've known Kevin for a very long time. We did uh, we did a lot of special needs in the hospital or his office before that, and about five years ago is when he introduced me to the concept of airway when he was doing the studies um, at the University of Chicago and Children's Memorial Hospital um, with Stephen Sheldon. 
And what they were studies were uh, actually uh, talking about, it was mostly about kids not getting adequate sleep. And then after uh, not getting adequate sleep or at least deep sleep, then they would have issues, behavioral issues. Um, they would be hyper and then they would get misdiagnosed a lot of times as ADHD patients. And that's what got me into this. And that was the time that, that the IATP, which meets once every three years, Kevin Boyd was, I think, their main lecturer or presenter. Yeah. And he told me to, uh, because I needed to know more about it before I started doing those procedures, he told me that he was going to be presenting in Montreal. And after I heard what IATP stands for, I told him these people need to get a life because I didn't know there's an organization for tongue ties. Yeah. However, when I went there and spent five days, not only did I meet you, but I met a lot of wonderful people that, like Bobby Gaheri and Larry Kaplow, um, and a lot of the therapists uh, that helped me be where I am today. You know, and it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Boyd invited me to speak with him at the keynote. We met. Dr. Larry Kotlow was there, and Dr. Larry Kotlow was who diagnosed the posterior tongue tie in my son, who was misdiagnosed by many phrenectomy practitioners here in Illinois. So I traveled to see him in Albany, had had his laser phrenectomy done, and his life has changed ever since. So I found out that you trained with Dr. Kotlow, then you trained with Dr. Bobby Gahari, and now recently it says internet connection is unstable. There we go. I'm losing it for a second here. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's no problem. Um, now you I, what I did is I shadowed. Yeah, can you hear me? I'm yeah. sorry. I can't. Okay. okay. Um, yes, I what I did is I I went and shadowed Dr. Cadlo in uh, in Albany for three days in with 12 inches of snow, and it was amazing that all the patients, especially the babies, that came from all over New York and Boston and other states. They actually all came. There was no one cancellation. So I spent three days with him, and then I, w- I went and spent uh, time with Dr. Bobby Gaheri in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And when I switched my laser to the CO2 laser, um, I went and spent three days with uh, Dr. Uh, Siegel, Scott Siegel, who was also amazing in New York. Uh, and finally, I just completed uh, in March a mini residency with Dr. Zagi in L.A. Right. So, Milton, you are someone that's very serious about this and, and obviously getting the training, and it's not just an extra procedure for you to, to do with the CO2 laser. I And I entrusted even you to do my own labial phrenectomy, my two children. Um, they didn't have the labial phrenectomy by Dr. Kotlow, so I decided I was going to trust you and trust you with many of my patients. So I'm I'm very happy to have you here. And I want others to really understand how we work together and how, what is a vernectomy and how, what kinds of symptoms does it help? So here's a couple questions for you. Um, first of all, what made you get into performing these? What, what was it about? Was it Dr. Kevin Boyd that really made you think about this? Yeah, well, as a periodontal surgeon, you know, I've been doing phrenectomies, especially labials and occasionally a lingual phrenectomy for orthodontic reasons. And that was usually on older kids or adults going or going through orthodontic treatment. 
So I was trying to do different activities. Um, not as much, actually, even with the CO2, was a resident of Northwestern. Um, however, I did not do it for the reasons that I do now. And a lot of those reasons have to do, as you well know, with airway, uh, with, you know, breastfeeding in babies. If you told me five years ago that I would be taking care of newborns in my office, I would tell you that you're smoking something. I don't know. <laughs> however, you know, we started with children and with Kevin Boyd and the studies that he did. And my part is only a small part. And it's great that you said that, and I know you're going to talk about therapy and everything else. But all I do is release the tissue, release the organ, release whatever needs to be released so that you can do your job. And you can help that patient improve. That's the, that's all I did. So my part is the easy part. It takes a lot of training, but my part is the easy part. The hard part is yours and the parents and the child, you know, depending on their age. So anyhow, so yes, I, I started doing those because the low posture of the tongue, the tongue staying low when the, you're trying to sleep or lay back, you know, lay on your back, it would partially block your airway. Even when you're standing up, you know, a lot of times the tongue tie would cause, as you taught me, because I didn't know that before, that might cause a forward posture because, you know, it obstructs your breathing or it leaves the highway bone. So for those reasons is what I started doing those uh, lip ties and tongue ties. Speech issues also as well. A lot of the speech language pathologists, you know, they, they recognize a lot of them, the speech issues. However, they don't know much about the things that we're talking about that in my opinion, they're more serious issues, but speech is also very important. Yes. Yes. So we've talking about tongue and, and, and tongue training. Myofunctional therapy is what we're really talking about. And, um, you know, as a physical therapist, I also treat the head and neck, the posture, the breathing of these patients. So how important is that part of the frenetomy? Because there's some practitioners that are not either connected with someone like me. What What is the, what is the difference of not doing it versus having someone go through the hands-on treatment, the guided treatment, the tongue training part? afterwards well um my philosophy and the, the people that uh like dr zaghi for example that i train with our philosophy is that therapy is more important than surgery i can there's very few uh type of surgeries that i can think in medicine but they work well without any type of therapy before and after you know what we do is similar to let's say a prosthetic knee can you ever imagine of somebody having and knee replaced and not have physical therapy before and after. You know, tissue scars a lot of times. Uh, so we're trying to prevent scarring. We're trying to, to good, get good healing and we're retraining muscles. We're, and a lot of the things that you do, my surgery on its own will not achieve. The patient might get better the first week, but after that, everything starts to be attached. It starts from scar tissue without exercises. The surgery, in my opinion, does not work, does not work as well. With therapy, you're going to get some improvement. Without therapy, you're going to get most likely very little improvement, no improvement. In some cases, you might get worse afterwards, just because the things, the, the tissue, uh, either out of the tongue or out of the lip, can form a lot of scar tissue and become really tight. Um, there is a number of patients that I see for reduce or revisions, as we call them, um, and the reason I do that is because a lot of times they saw a practitioner, 
um, but went ahead with the releases. However, do not recommend any type of therapy before or after the releases. And now the second or third time around, when I come to do the releases, it becomes a lot more difficult because now we have to remove scar tissue first before we proceed with a good release. And, of course, the, the parents, the child, or even an adult, they've been through the previous procedure at least once and sometimes twice or more. And now, of course, you know, they're not as patient as they were the first time around. In my opinion, and, you know, any type of surgery works well when it's done right the first time. Every time you go for revision, second and third time, yes, it works, but it becomes more and more difficult. Right. So therapy, again, I'm going to repeat, not because you're interviewing me, because that's my belief, is more important than the release. So how how long do you recommend a patient go through the tongue and the myofunctional therapy training? Sorry. Okay. Before... And after the procedure, and why would you say that? Why why is it important to do it before? And why is it well? We know why it's important to do it after, but why is it important to do before? And how long? Those are all excellent questions. Okay, let's start first with kind of ranges of ages. Okay, I would start first with infants. Um, infants, uh, unless if they're newborn that are in for an emergency, and sometimes I have to see them right away because they're losing a lot of weight and they're two or three days old, um, they they won't have much. If we're lucky, we're going to be able they, definitely they've seen a lactation consultant, but also we'll try to get them as soon as possible to see a myofunctional therapist. A lot of times the myofunctional therapist would be somebody like you, of course, somebody who has experience with treating babies and possibly a body worker. You know, uh, however, sometimes on newborns, it is very difficult to bring all these people together. Ideally, we try to do the best we can to get these people together. Um, so for newborns and infants, I would say that an initial evaluation by you or, you know, a myofunctional therapist um, is very important. And then you get a chance to review exercises and stretches and have the parents repeat them in your office under your supervision to make sure that they're doing them adequately. And then if we are lucky enough to have at least maybe a second session where they come back if the infant is a little older and we're not rushing for time to go ahead and have at least a second appointment to make sure that the parents are able to do what they need to do and sometimes fit in some body work, some pressure release, some craniosacral treatment right before the releases because this makes the parents very familiar with the stretches of what they need to do. It loosens up a little bit of the fascia, which makes it easier for me to find the ties and do the best I can to release the fascia because at that age, we don't, we don't invade muscle, okay? We're just releasing fascia. And then they, uh, the baby sometimes gets a little bit used to the mom, the dad, or both getting into their mouth and doing those stretches. So it works all around better if they have at least a couple sessions, if not more, before the releases. Then I go ahead and proceed, proceed with the release. And then I require that the, the baby is going to be seen by you or by any, of course, uh, therapist, my functional therapist that they're seeing within 24 hours. It can be immediately after the procedures that they may come, or it might be the day after. But within 24 hours, they have to be seen to make sure now that the releases are done, now you're going to be retraining the tongue. You've got to make sure that um, you are that the parents are still able to do the stretches the way they're supposed to. Because, you know, when it's your child and it's your baby and the baby's crying when you're doing it, you're thinking you're hurting your baby, you're not. However, all these things 
the support that you give is not only to make sure that they're doing the stretches properly, but it gives really a, a relief of the parent that they're not hurting their baby, that everything is going well, and a reassurance for the for the next few days that are going to be a little tough for them. How about after the, the, the frenectomy? Yes, after, I, um, I require six weeks because, you know, let's think about the tissues, right? When you are, when you're working on tissues, the, the outer layer is mostly epithelium, which heals really fast. However, the deeper layers, when you're going closer to the muscle, even if it's fascia, it's connective tissue. And connective tissue takes about six weeks. I'm sorry, uh, the, the epithelium takes about one to two weeks for healing. The, the deeper layers, they take about six weeks. And when soft tissue heals, it shrinks. So you have to keep doing those stretches uh, for six weeks. That's our regimen. Or longer if they need to, but six weeks. And six times a day. That's approximately every four hours. And some people think, oh, my God, you know, this is a lot. Well, in my experience, when I first started doing this, everybody has their own protocols. Everybody that I spend time with in a shadow they have their own protocols. So in order to figure out mine, on the first several months, I brought, you know, babies and moms for post-ups every other day almost. It seemed it would never end. However, that's when we saw when we get the best results. And when you stop too soon or you don't do it enough, then the results were not as great. And we have to deal with compliance too. You know, a lot of times you tell somebody to do something six times and maybe four. If you tell them three, you're lucky if they do one. So all these things, they're like safeguards so that we get a good result. So now our reduce revisions, they're less than 1%. What other procedure do you know in medicine that can be 99% successful? Right. (laughs) I normally see these patients twice a week for the first two weeks post-phrenectomy. We try Uh to make sure that the incision site heals vertically, not, not against itself, attached to the floor of the mouth. Right. Okay. And then um, we continue with the hands-on physical therapy, the breathing training, and the myofunctional therapy for about two more months at least. If the patient is needing more, we continue. But normally it's a good result after two months of training the tongue. Because the tongue, what I've found, doesn't always know what to do when it's released. It needs to be firmed, toned, toned. trained to be up on the palate supporting the soft tissue. So, the, sorry, supporting the soft palate so it it allows a, a good airway and supports that airway space in the back of your throat. So I, I'm really, um, I'm happy to hear that you believe this and that this is something that you feel creates the best outcome for these patients. Yeah. Well, I believe in it because that's what I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, what happens if if they don't have, you said that if they don't have this type of treatment, then it kind of reattaches. Patients might right. need a, a second um, a revision. Yeah. And it forms, and usually it forms some uh, some scar tissue. Yeah, so it thickens and it hardens yeah. and it even yeah. attaches. And that scar tissue is not flexible. So now, even if the, the reattachment is not, let's say, to the teeth or exactly what it was before, it becomes more of a tight posterior type. So now you still don't have the lift of the back of the tongue. You still don't have the improvement in swallowing and everything you're trying to achieve. 
because that tissue is not flexible, so it won't allow the proper lift of the tongue and the proper swallowing. Okay. Um, okay, so what tools do you use to perform the phrygectomy procedure? No, I'm Because I know that there's a laser, there's CO2 lasers, the regular, uh, you know, other lasers, scissors, and scalpel. What, what, what do you use, and why, and what's better? That's another great question. First of all, I want you to know, like you know, in your profession, the tool does not matter as much as the training of the clinician performing the surgery. So I have seen excellent releases with scissors, and I have seen really bad releases with lasers. So the first thing I want to say is, yes, I I obviously, I believe that the laser is a better situation, but nothing is going to make up for short, uh, for for a problem with training of the individual. So my opinion is the biggest, the most important thing before starting to do releases like that is, number one, have good therapists that you can work with. But number two, you gotta get the appropriate training. And when you think you've got enough training, you take get more training. With that, we're on the same page because you're doing the same thing on your part as I'm doing on my part. Because that's the only way we can guarantee to ourselves, not just anybody else, but to ourselves that we're doing the right thing and we're helping people. Remember in Greek, right? The Hippocratic Oath says, do not harm. That's our first thing is do not harm. So in order to not harm, you have to get a lot of training. Now, back to the laser situation, I think the best laser for this is the CO2, the carbon dioxide laser. The reason is the carbon dioxide laser is because if you look at all the other different lasers that are out there, the majority of lasers that people use, if it's not carbon dioxide, it is either a diode or an nd laser. The problem with those lasers is when you use them as lasers, they don't cut. In order to, for the laser, the nd or the diode laser to cut, you have to what they call uh, initiating the tip. That means you put, you block the laser beam from leaving the tip of the laser, and it heats up the tip, and now what you're using is no longer the laser activity, what you're using is a hot tip. So a hot tip burns tissue, it doesn't lace tissue. The CO2 laser, it vaporizes tissue. Mm. Give you an idea of what the difference is, you know, when you vaporize tissue, the cell is 90% water, the CO2 laser has affinity, high affinity for water. The energy of the laser gets absorbed by the cell, which vaporizes. It bursts. So it doesn't burn tissue. It vaporizes. Now, what that means for your patient is that let's compare two things. You use another laser or some of the ENTs, unfortunately, um, that are using uh, electrocautery, you know, in the, in the OR, which I think is the worst thing you can do. I'd rather use scissors than electrocautery because it really melts tissue. So a burn is more painful and takes longer to heal and doesn't heal as properly, where what the vaporization is is more like a scrape. You know when you scrape your skin off your hand? It is not very deep. It does not have thermal damage or effects underneath on the deeper tissues. And it doesn't hurt as much. It's uncomfortable, but it doesn't hurt much. So that's what I think for infants, and a lot of the younger children, I do only a laser type of a release. The CO2 is the best laser. Now, when you go, go into older kids and adults where I'm going to do a functional frenuloplasty, that means where I would separate the fascia, go down into muscle, and sometimes, a lot of times, release muscle. 
then I use a combination. That means that I start the fascia release with the CO2 laser, and then I separate the fascia from the muscle underneath, and now the muscle or the deep fascia release is done with scissors. And the reason it's done with scissors and hemostats is not because I don't like the laser for that, is that there are blood vessels and nerves that are lurking underneath that if, you know, the laser goes through the tissue and hits something that I don't want to, it's more for safety. Wonderful. Thank you for explaining that. You know, one of the things, it, you see infants, children, and adults. So how different are these phrenectomies? I mean, it's a very different sized tongue. And, and, and how, could you explain how you, how you perform them differently per, you know, the age group? Excellent question. Um, well, first of all, every patient is different. You know that better than me. That, you know, it's not only the age, but I don't think I've treated two patients exactly the same way. And that's where training experience and everything else. And your part, because a lot of times when they have the therapy, especially first, especially when you get into older, you know, into children and adults, then I have a lot easier time, you know, finding the restrictions and being more conservative because then I would only release the things that need to be released. You don't just go straight across. And that's the biggest thing with therapy too. It's not only that it prevents reties, it it, uh, it helps the muscle, you know, underneath, but it also allows me at the time of surgery to properly find the tight areas way better. You know, they pop. You can see them. Uh, there's less bleeding. There's less pain. There are so many benefits. So infants, like you said, yes, they're different because we never invade muscle. It's just a straight, you know, fascia release of the frenulum. And if there is muscle involvement, which sometimes it is, we don't do it. We wait later. And if and when it is necessary for do something like that, then that, um, that baby, when they become older children or whatever, and they have issues with speech or maybe still some swallowing problems or whatever, we might end up doing a functional release at that time. But the time, the infant is not the time to do such a release. Then on children, depend on the age, depend on behavior, and how well, you know, they're trained. Again, that is the experience of the therapist, because not all therapists are created equal either. So if the therapist is really good, the therapist has experience, especially with kids, they're able to handle them in a good way and train the parents. It's so much easier at the time of surgery to do a good job, and it's so much easier afterwards to continue with the therapy and not have uh, problems and retires. And sometimes you ah, suture, and sometimes you don't suture um, the the phrenectomy site. When, why do you not suture work versus leave it? Well, if the sutures are expensive. I usually don't suture. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if it, it, again, it's a good question. But in infants, it's a very rare time that I would suture. And the only time that I would suture in, in the case of an infant, if I think that the release is too deep, when I remove scar tissue sometimes, I just did a case today on a lip that was done before, it had huge amounts of scar tissue. So at that point, I decided that it was best to put some sutures, not in the area of the gingiva, you know, the labial gingiva, but on the area underneath the lip, because then it makes the area smaller, and you can still stretch it. You know, I put the sutures under tension. So this way, when you're stretching the lip, you can still do your stretch, you can still do everything, but it's not a very large, very wide and deep area that you have to deal with. 
So the heel is much better. There's a lot less pain. The same thing for the tongue. Very rarely would I suture, you know, a tongue on an infant, but I had a couple of occasions that when I released the frenulum, and the way the release is done, the, the area was deeper than I like to see. So again, I was able to put, you know, one little suture there just to make it more comfortable for there to do the stretch and everything else. But that is very rare. Children, if I do more of a functional type of release, the same thing with adults, there's always sutures. You always have to stitch it because otherwise the pain is more, the area is deep, you're going to form a very thick scab that makes your life a lot harder and the stretches. And you should tell me, because obviously I've treated a lot of your patients, you know, children, older children, adults, that we did a functional frenuloplasty, and tell me how that compares, um, you know, the type of the release, the quality of the release, the elevation of the tongue, and then the healing afterwards compared to what we used to do a couple years ago when we didn't do the functional releases and we do straight laser releases, and some of them were deeper. What was your experience with those? I, I find that um, with the stitching, it, it, there's less reattachment and less scarring. So I feel like the change that you've made has really benefited the patients because they're not in that much pain and they're also, it healed smoother. There is still a scar that we have to soften up, but it's not as thick. So I find that, you know, and, and I find that it's been a better way of doing it. And also you've always told me to prep the patient to be able to hold 30 to 45 seconds, the cave, which is the suction up to the palate. And that makes them really practice that exercise. And that's, that's one of the most important exercises. That's really what we want is the tongue to live up on the palate, supporting the back of the throat and the soft palate. So they, I, I tell them, you're going to have to do that several, several times and hold it for 45 seconds. And Dr. Gavilis is going to be able to see exactly how far he needs to release it. And it, it, it compliance is better. I find that patients aren't going to go to you knowing that they shouldn't go to you if they can't do that. So I, I find it overall, it's been a great uh, change in, in the way that you've been doing it. So... Now, I'm talking as a parent. You know, Sorry, you can't. Thank you. Sorry. Okay. I'm always needed. <laughs> what does phrenectomies what prevent? I'm talking to you as a mother. And say I'm a mother of an infant or a child that is, has been said, has been told, you know what, your child is tongue-tied. You know, you should really consider training the tongue and doing myofunctional therapy. Sorry, myofunctional therapy and having a phrenectomy. It's scary to have your child go under a laser. You know, as a as a mother myself, I knew I needed to do it, but I'm in the field. I understand it. What would you say to a parent? What is this going to avoid in the future for their child that becomes an adult? Why would That's a great question, and we do it every day. Why would they want to go um, through this invasive? The, the first thing that, I, and I will tell you what I do exactly, you know, the first thing that I tell parents, let's start with, you know, infants or children, is I tell them I, I'm not in the business of selling procedures. 
You know, there's a reason why we do the procedures. However, I would tell them too that there, I cannot guarantee that all the issues that they're having or perceive they're having or you said or the therapy said that they're having that we're trying to fix, they're all going to be fixed. Most of the times they do. However, we cannot promise them that everything is going to be perfect, you know, after the releases. Then I go into what is necessary. I talk about the therapy. I talk about the importance of the therapy and what they need to do. And that is a big commitment, you know, for them in order to do it, in order for my procedure to work. Because without the therapy, the procedure, I tell them straight out, it will not work. And I've seen it not work, and I'm not happy. I don't like to do procedures that don't work. Not only in phrenectomies, in anything that I do. So then, you know, different ages and everything else, although they got a lot of similarities in what we're trying to treat and what we're trying to achieve, if you look at the different ages, you start, let's say, with infants, right? With infants, one of the one of the first things that we're looking at, and the reason they come here is because the mom wants to breastfeed, she has a difficulty breastfeeding, and they got tons of symptoms. You know, the, the baby is gassy, the baby has problems, the baby cannot latch, their nipples, they have nipple pain, their, their nipples are chewed up on, and there's so many issues that they have. However, they do want their, their baby to breastfeed. Now, breastfeeding, number one, is not only it's great for the baby, because as you will know, and as I was told by lactation consultants, you know, IBCLCs, by practitioners like yourself and therapists, that there are different muscles that the baby uses on the breast than the muscles that the baby uses on the bottle. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that when they're newborns or a little later, you know, with, with infants, um, I, probably one quarter to one fifth of the 20% to 25% of the babies that I see, they're on baby's Zantac. So actually they're healthy babies that are placed on medications for acid reflux, which I, I, I think is ridiculous that we think that healthy babies have acid reflux. They usually don't. It's aerophagia, right? A Greek word. That means eating air. So since the lip or the lips are not plunging because they're tight and the baby cannot open very much and the tongue has a low posture, so the tongue does not lift to do the proper type of breastfeeding and swallowing, the latch is poor, there is a lot of air that the baby swallows, the air has to come out, and with it, brings milk that the baby just had in, in their stomach. I had babies that come in here that uh, the minute that I try to check, they have projectile vomiting. Yeah. And again, they're placed on medications that now we don't recommend adults to be taking for a long time. However, we keep giving them three months. I'm not saying that 100% of the time we're going we're gonna to fix the reflux, but I'm telling you, the majority of the times when there is a tongue tie, lip tie, um, and it affects their swallowing and their latch. Yes, we do. We're fixing the reflux. It's no longer there. And most of my patients, when they come back, that's one of the first things that they say. Baby can open more. Baby can latch better. Mom has no pain. There is the right muscles and the right motion of the tongue that is going on. And they're less gassy. They're less fussy. And they don't spit or plumbing anymore like they used to. So that's for babies. And, and there's a lot more things that I can't even think of all of them right now to tell you. But for babies, you know, uh, when they get older, and at six months or seven months, when they're trying to introduce solid foods, right, then we have choking, we have gagging, we have food aversions. And a lot of those, uh, if, they, if they're not caught by the pediatrician or the ENT or whoever the mom has seen before, um, they come to me at an age of two or two and a half, which is a lot harder to deal with. I'm not saying we can't deal with it, but we can, 
but it's a lot harder for the parents. It's a lot harder for you, the therapist, trying to prevent, you know, reattachment and scar tissue and do the tongue uh, exercises and, and do the tongue stretches when they have a full set of baby teeth and they're bigger and they scream and they bite. So it becomes a lot harder. We have kids, I'm sure you have seen them too, that are two and two and a half years old and they're on liquid diets. They've never chewed food. Yeah. You know, my, my son was three when Dr. Kotlow released his, his posterior tongue tie. And as a myofunctional therapist and a physical therapist, I've released the tongue and he'd spit up, he'd throw up, he'd have gag, hypersensitive gag re- reflex. Um, and I, it all went away just because of the release of the tongue. I, it's, it's exactly what you're saying that section because I see it every day. We do babies that the mom says, you know, when I do my examination and I lift the tongue, they start immediately gagging. We take them in the back when they would do the procedure, and even children, right? We lift the tongue, and as soon as I start the, the laser release, they, you know they're gagging. So they start, and suddenly it's like, they take a breath, and it's done. And now I can continue with what I'm doing, and the gagging is gone. I bring them back, and I show, I demonstrate, and I do the first round of stretches, for the parents, and there's no gagging. Completely different than doing the examination and the gagging that the, the baby or the child has. Right. It's amazing. It really is. So, and for adults, what I've found with working with you, I, I you know, one patient came back and said, my nose breathing is so much better. My nose breathing. And I, you know, I'm a buteco breathing trainer, so I'm, I'm all about nose breathing, and we released a very, very, very tight tongue, and he's going to need a second procedure because it was just ridiculously tight. But his initial, after a week, he's like, Jenny, my nose breathing is so much better. I can't believe it. But I also hear a lot, my neck tension is, is relieved. My, my, my neck and my jaw, I don't feel like I'm clenched all the time like I was. My headaches are, you know, relieved. So I just wanted to share that with, with the audience because if there's things, and everybody's different. Not everybody's well, going to have the same re- reaction. But so that, but ultimately what I see, oh, there's an internet, yeah. What I see is that if we release the tongue, if you, you, if we pre-train the tongue. That's it. That's the most important thing. If we pre-train it, you release it. We continue training it. We continue training the posture of the tongue, the, the tone, and that it's not just falling down back in the throat, and that we train the swallow, that there's we're not recruiting all these extra muscles in the face and in, in, in the neck to swallow properly. We're going to avoid problems such as the headache, the TMJ, the poor posture, um, the poor forward head posture that's a, basically an airway posture but it's 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 something that re- ultimately treats sleep apnea and and I truly believe that if you can train the tongue to be off the back of the th- in the back of the throat and bring it forward up on the palate you relieve the the, the occlusion of the the airway and you create the proper alignment and the space for the throat and the space for the airway. So, I totally agree. Now, 
looking back, you know, backtracking on that, I mean, the whole purpose of everything we're doing is really nasal breathing, no mouth breathing, sealed lips, right? Because that's the natural way we should be breathing. That's why we don't have hair in our throat. Otherwise, you know, if we're meant to be breathing like that, we would have them to, you know, hold off the allergens and everything else that enters. Um, yes, I agree with you. Although the one thing that I want to say is sometimes the airway might be restricted on its own and that the tongue posture will help it, but won't really fix everything. They still might continue to be mouth breathers. So we need to worry about doing things to, you know, improve the airway. And also, if there are issues with the nose, like a deviated septum, or other issues that the person cannot breathe through their nose, regardless of their airway. So those are a couple things. But other than that, the majority of the patients that they, and, and let's not let's not forget, because I tell my patients all the time, I go, my functional therapy was not really developed many years ago in order to not have the tongue retied, right? It was developed more for breathing, am I correct, and yeah. more airway issues than it was for actual things that we're doing today and we're using it for in addition to those issues. It makes the person more aware of their mouth, of, of their whole head and neck. It makes them, because any the minute you train them and they're doing the cave or lingual palatal seal, suddenly they're feeling things that they have never felt before. The patients are going to tell you where the tension is. They can They can figure it out for themselves. They're training their muscles, so when they come here, and they're prepared for a minimum of six weeks. And that's our, Dr. Zaghi has the same protocol. A minimum of six weeks. And some of those patients, they need longer than six weeks. So they can do all the things we need to do. And it's not just to be able to hold this action and to hold those things. They, without getting tired, is they have to be doing it at least, you know, the four times a day for six weeks. It's like going to the health club and lifting weights. So that when I go in to find the, the tight spots, Underneath their friend lung, you know, underneath their tongue, they pop at me because they've been trained to do that. Yeah. And there's hardly any bleeding. I don't care if I don't use a laser because I'm telling you, Jennifer, I know the minute I go underneath into muscle, if that person has doing what they said to me they've been doing, and I tell them, you can lie to me because I'm not. If the minute I release the fascia and I go into muscle and there's a lot of bleeding, I know they're not trained. They have not done what we ask them to do. Right. I know when they've done it. Because even without a laser, we have hardly any bleeding at all during the procedure. Hardly any bleeding. Wow. Wow. And afterwards, obviously, bleeding is not an issue 99.9% of the time. And the, depending on how the, the procedure is done, but especially because a lot of those patients, I use Medrol, you know, which is a six-day steroid, a very strong anti-inflammatory. We reduce inflammation. We reduce pain, so they can start the same day doing the stretches and exercises without a lot of pain, more comfortably, without swelling, without having issues with blocking the airway, and uh, and not having to wait two or three or four days when the pain subsides in order for them to start their stretches. And the difference is huge. But your preparation has been amazing. I know the, the patient, and I say all these things not because you're the one talking to me and interviewing me, the whole point I'm saying that is because I drank the Kool-Aid, Jenny. And it's been because of people like you that they educated me on this. They're very passionate about it. And I'm a better surgeon because of you. Thank you. I just have two more questions. Now, you know I do butaco breathing training. And I, I, I incorporate myofunctional therapy in the butaco breathing training. 
how important do you recommend this to the patient? Do you tell them about it? Because I think that not many people know that nose, nose breathing training exists and that it actually can help patients that are chronic mouth breathers or have sleep apnea or overbreathe. You know, a lot of people are in these symptoms that they don't quite understand are breathing symptoms. And I wanted to ask, do you, do you tell people about nasal breathing training or butaco breathing training or the Hobson Institute breathing program? Only 100% of the time. <laughs> I do. I take myself. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's the whole point is breathing. That's what everything we do is to improve breathing. And if we improve breathing, especially nasal breathing, that's our main concern. That's how you improve sleep. You improve everything else. If you keep being a mouth breather, there's not such great improvement with all the stuff that we do. So ultimately, that's the goal. So I tell them, even if it's not your patients, you're going to see patients from other therapists. And and I tell them, I tell the therapist, I said, you know, breathing is very important. I send them to your clinics that you have. You might see referrals from other ones just to or themselves you know, coming out because some of your patients are therapists themselves that I treat and I did the release and I tell them, make sure breathing because if you have not been breathing through your nose for 30 or 40 or 50 years, just of what we do is not going to make you immediately breathe through your nose. You need retraining. As the tongue needs retraining, your lips need retraining, your breathing needs retraining. And the minute they understand that and the minute they're willing to do the stuff that you teach them, when they come back, Okay, they make my day because now everything is working like it's supposed to. So they went through everything we asked them to do. The airways improved, the tongue posture is improved, their whole posture is improved, so that forward posture is no longer there. Their pain and their tension is gone, and now they're breathing better. And the first thing they say is, "Oh my God, I have not slept like this as long as I remember myself." So when everything works together, so yes, I will tell them 100% of the time. Um, about breathing and we take on what you're doing and how important that is in the whole treatment because that's our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is breathing. Okay, last question. Um, you know, I'm about to embark on an osteopathic training where um, I'm being trained by osteopaths, similar to what my therapist, Kathy Matias Riggs, does. Uh, she's a osteopathic trained PT that helps Babies that have plesiocephaly, which is misshapen heads, flat heads on, on, on one side, or torticollis. How important is that work to patients or babies that have tongue ties? You know, some practitioners aren't aware of this type or some parents aren't aware that these types of therapies exist. And how does that help your situation with these patients? Extremely important. Of course, everything is extremely important, right? Because uh, I see a lot of babies, and when I first started doing this, you know, most, I, I would pretty much go out and say that the standard of care with PTs when there's a torticollis or plyocephaly is a helmet, okay? And I used to get those babies with those big helmets, especially in the summer, they're sweaty, they're fussy, they, they got, you know, uh, they're all red. And I thought, also, that that was, I guess, that's what you do. We used to have little boxing gloves that we'd give them and take pictures with them because we thought it was funny that they were wearing those helmets. I didn't know anything about cranial fascia release. I didn't know anything about, you know, craniosacral. 
especially, I was talking, although at the meeting at the IETP, you know, I learned some of that stuff. Well, the problem is I, I had no one that I knew that does that. And even now, to this day, I'm glad that you're going into that yourself, too, because, you know, we never stop with students, right? Uh, because there are not many people that they do this or do it the right way, especially when it comes to incomes. So I've worked with uh, Kathy in many of our patients, and it's pretty amazing, especially after the release, before the release, to release the fascia, because, again, I learned that fascia is one piece, right? Start, starting from the head and neck and going all the way down to your toes. Whenever there's aberration somewhere in the fascia, of course, there's compensation that can affect other areas. So, yes, craniosacral uh, body work for, uh, in my opinion, uh, for an infant all the way to an adult is the best way of treating issues like that instead of helmets and other things. Uh, that I, you know, they, they not much of a benefit is very cumbersome to the parents as well as to the baby. I also don't uh, think that the baby can ha- handle a heavy no. thing on its head. Like the neck muscles are not ready for that weight. I, I totally agree. The head weight already. So. And to get it further is one of the one of the uh, great chiropractors that I work with. I don't know if you know her. Is Dr. Kelly Wells? She is with you know practices with Dr. Lipskis. Um, I do. I take care. She's a myofunctional therapist as well as a chiropractor, and she has extra training on um, cranial. Uh, fascia releases, so she pretty much concentrates her practice on the head and neck now, and whenever it is one of her patients, either an older child or an adult, that I would do a functional type of functional frenuloplasty, especially when I release muscle for muscle, for tension and everything else, she comes to my office 15 minutes before the patient, um, before the surgery time. And the patient comes, she does a cranial fascia release 15 minutes before. She's already been working with the patient for at least a couple months with, you know, body work as well as my functional therapy. And then during my procedure, I stop twice. She rechecks the areas and pretty much Jenny tells me when I'm done. Wow. One of the most amazing things that I've ever done. I And I have patients that they come in and they are able to turn their head on either side about 45 degrees. And the minute they go any further, not only they feel tension, they feel pain. They can't do it. Yeah. When we're done, they're almost at 90 degrees. They, they, they cannot believe in themselves what they can do after the release. But that's what I mean. It takes a village. This is not about me being a great surgeon and doing the procedure. Without input from therapists of all kinds, from body workers, from my functional therapists, um, feeling specialist. That's what makes it work, not the procedure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I do think you're an excellent surgeon and, and, and above and beyond. You, you are a, an eternal student that wants to keep learning, and I will always share um, my knowledge with you, and I appreciate all that you've done for my patients. So thank you for your time, and thank you for your um, this wonderful podcast that we can share with everyone that's interested. Thank you for your kind words. Um, I really appreciate it, and I love working with you and people like yourself because that's what ultimately uh, gets greatest results for our patients. Thank you, and it's an honor.